National Geographic Documentary Films and Picture House present The Mission, the gripping story of John Chow, the American missionary killed attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island. Hailed by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year, a nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. The Mission, now playing in select theaters. Hey, I'm John Ridley. I'm the founder of No Studios. And I'm Matt Carey, the documentary editor at Deadline.com. And this is Doc Talk, a podcast each week. Matt and I, we dig into the critical content that's being created by some of today's most outstanding documentary filmmakers, storytellers. Uh, Matt, we talk about industry leaders and really documentaries. You know, we say changing the world one documentary at a time, but I really think we do a pretty good job of just finding people who are energized to tell stories and tell them in a way that are very creative and very informative. Yes, and one of those people is Don Porter, has become one of the most, I, th- I think, important figures in documentary film. I know, John, you've interviewed her before about Good Trouble, her documentary about John Lewis. She has got a new documentary series out about the U.S. Supreme Court called Deadlocked, how America shaped the Supreme Court, and it could not be more timely. Yeah, a lot of conversations about the Supreme Court. This one is really a deep dive of the modern court from the Eisenhower era to the present day. It's an incredible conversation. So um, let's just get straight into it. Dawn Porter originally trained to be a lawyer, but eventually turned her attention to filmmaking. Among the films she's directed are the documentaries Gideon's Army about Black public defenders in the Deep South and Trapped about the last accessible abortion clinic in Mississippi, as well as an examination of the life of John Lewis, the extraordinary film John Lewis, Good Trouble. And she is back with a new docuseries on Showtime. It's called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court. It's a pleasure to welcome to Doc Talk, Dawn Porter. Dawn, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with both of you. Great to have you. Well, it's it's a pleasure to speak with you, even though the subject matter is incredibly fraught. It's a little complicated, but I mean, talk about a subject that is urgent and necessary. It's the Supreme Court. You know, I'm at a certain age now, and there are a lot of moments in your film that I remember being there for, not literally, but seeing, watching on television. Um, some seem monumental, some seem insignificant, relatively speaking, but they became incredibly important. So, to sit and then do a deep dive and see all the things that I didn't know about the Supreme Court and how it's worked and how, as you say, interestingly in the title, how America shaped the Supreme Court, not necessarily how the Supreme Court shaped America. I guess the question is, how do you find a way into all this? And you found your way in with Earl Warren. Talk about who he was and talk about, more importantly, for you, out of the the hundreds of years of the court being in place, that that was the place to really start and start educating people about the court. Like a lot of films, um, documentary films, the hardest thing to do is to start them because you're not quite sure where you should jump in at what period in history is the kind of place that makes sense to begin. So my background is I'm a lawyer. I went to Georgetown Law School. You know, the first class you take in law school is constitutional law. You study the Supreme Court decisions. 
I lived on Capitol Hill. So I would literally walk by the Supreme Court every day, you know, and I'm kind of like a, a blurred. I'm a black girl nerd. You know, I was like, look at the Supreme Court. It's just, it's inspiring, you know, for a lot of people, for a lot of black people in particular, the Supreme Court historically was the place where we went for justice. It is the the court that gave us Brown v. Board of Education. It is the court that gave us uh, the rights to criminal protections. And so, you know, that's kind of the court that I grew up admiring and in some sense revering. So, um, but why I started with the the Warren Court is because that is the that is the court where you first start to see the Supreme Court essentially realize or or take up the the challenge of using the Constitution for the protection of individual rights. Before that, the court really was very focused on economic rights. What powers did the government have? And what you see with the Warren Court is this rather extraordinary use um, of the Constitution to say, this Bill of Rights protects individuals. It protects the least powerful. It protects the minorities. We you know, wanted to start there. The other reason is just in a filmic way, starting with the most liberal court and ending where we are today felt like the right arc. It gave some shape to the series, you know, because when you have several hundred years of history, you have to pick a place to give it some shape. One of the things I really appreciate about coming into this documentary, it really, while it's about the court, while it's about the country, while it's about the laws, in, in my opinion, really about two men. One is Earl Warren, who the, the, becomes the chief justice uh, appointed by Eisenhower. The other is Thurgood Marshall, who at this time is not yet on the court. But, you know, if you're anyone, and in particular, if you're a black person, you know that name. But there are so many things I did not know about him as a person. Um, and I want to just throw a couple of things out there because I'd love you to comment on them. One, as, as a kid, and I just love this anecdote that he was maybe, you know, not the most attentive young man at school. And so he would get punished. And, and how did they, quote unquote, punish Thurgood Marshall in school? So Marshall grows up in Baltimore, um, and uh, he has always been kind of a rabble rouser. He's always been a bit of a rebel. Um, and so he would get punished by being forced to memorize the Constitution. <laughs> it's kind of like Br'er Rabbit, like, please don't throw me into that, you know, right. into, into that patch, right? right. And, and, you know, Marshall grows up with a father who takes him and his brother to go listen to court arguments. And it makes a huge impression on Marshall as a young man. One of the things that is so important to people is being able to imagine a world that is better than the world that you live on. And Marshall seizes on this imagination very early in his life. And so he, when he goes to law school, a lot of Marshall's you know, career is due to his um, being stubborn, obstinate, and intent on retribution. So you know, one of the first uh, places he sues is the University of Maryland because they wouldn't admit him because he was Black. And so he says, I will see you in court. And he wins, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, but Marshall, if you think about it, it is really one of the grandest stories in American history. When you really look at it, Thurgood Marshall, you know, there's a line from him directly to Clarence Thomas and the whys of, of his appointment and, and where we are now. So I, I do think it's absolutely fair. And, you know, he argued 32 times 
in front of the Supreme Court, and they sided with him 29. Uh, I think from 1940 to 1960, he was one of the lawyers who spent some of the most time in front of the Supreme Court. If you want to talk about an individual who really shaped that court um, in the modern sense, it, it's Thurgood Marshall. He's clearly one of the greatest orators, litigators um, of all time, of any race, any background, you know, um, that is Marshall. And what's even more significant than that is the cases that Marshall and his merry band of lawyers, including Constance Baker, Baker Motley, took on. They were systematically and strategically choosing cases to dismantle segregation. And they intentionally chose to target things that wouldn't be politically explosive at first. And it's such a brilliant strategy. So first they right. challenge, you know, law schools. Well, not a lot of people cared about law schools. The Supreme Court rules as it rules. And in the body of work that Marshall and his lawyers assemble, by the time they get to Brown v. Board, he's already been the architect of that decision. It is impossible for the court. He's backed the court into a corner. It's the ultimate game of chess. So in addition to being in the court, Marshall is also politically acting outside of the court. In you know very famous exchanges, Marshall is the person who pushes the president to desegregate the army. He says black people are not going and you know and going to defend America unless they can fight alongside you know white soldiers unless they can get the same benefits. So he's firing on all cylinders by the time like Brown v. Board of Education comes to the court. So he has this remarkable career before he's even appointed. And President Johnson appoints him to be Solicitor General for a very strategic reason. He says, you know, you've won all these cases. You've won most of the cases that you've argued before the court. And now I'm going to make you the lawyer for the United States of America. So every time a case where, you know, the United States of America is the plaintiff or defendant, it is a Black man who is going to stand up and say, Thurgood Marshall for the United States of America, your honors. And he is then going to become the Solicitor General of the United States. And so President Johnson says, they can say a lot of things about you, Thurgood. They can't say you're not qualified. And we are still having those conversations today about whether Black people are qualified. So President Johnson takes that argument off the table, he thinks, in preparing Marshall to become, to be appointed to the United States Supreme Court. Yeah, that argument came up uh, in the confirmation hearings of Justice Katenji Brown-Jackson. Again, the implication that somehow she was not qualified. That's right. Apparently being undergrad, Harvard Law, editor of the Harvard Law Review, there's more she could do. I guess she could fly. <laughs> <laughs> John and I both grew up in the Midwest. John and Mil uh, in the Milwaukee area, me in uh, central Illinois, so we we're pretty far from the Supreme Court, but I'm very grateful that my parents did when I was a kid take me to Washington, D.C., me and my brothers one time, and we went to the Supreme Court, and we saw Justice Marshall in the hallway, and I, I just remember it as an awesome moment. Mm. And I bring it up in part because, like most people at that time, the court to me was an institution you revered. You know, the marble columns, the justices in their robes. Today, the Supreme Court, and this is the backdrop to your series, is 
held in the lowest esteem in terms of approval ratings, perhaps in its entire history, or certainly since Gallup polling started. 40% approval rating, according to the Gallup survey in August 2023. Now, interestingly, 62% of Republicans approve of this court, 17% of of Democrats. But that's really the, the backdrop to your series, isn't it, of this what could say, one could say a crisis of legitimacy of the Supreme Court. That is the backdrop. And, you know, to hear you uh, recount that that polling, it, it's gutting. The United States Supreme Court is one of the institutions that is held up around the world. It is the most powerful court in the world. It has certainly done some remarkable things. And to think that this is where we are. And it's also important that you describe the difference in public opinion, that 17% of Democrats approve of the court and 60%. And that's really where the title comes from. It's not the court that's deadlocked, it's the country. Um, And it's also the country that is shaping the court in our elections, um, but in also how we're pressuring the court to decide along ideological lines. What long-form documentary can do, particularly because Showtime gave us four hours, is we can give you this history and we can show you that the current composition of the court did not spring out of nowhere. It has been a decades-long campaign and we're seeing the results of that effort. Yeah. Talk about a long game. I mean, uh, you have people on both sides of the political spectrum, I think, in the series who do speak admiringly, whether they are, say, from the left, of Federalist Society in particular, playing a game, a long game of many, many decades. And, of course, there's the moment when Mitch McConnell, so critical to the current composition of the court, who basically vows after Judge Robert Bork's nomination was rejected, like, oh, we're going to get you. This is going back to the Reagan administration. Conservatives are still very sore about that, and they plotted a way to, well, to basically take control of the court. In the series, we have 200 minutes of archival, and there's a very specific reason for that. We currently live in a, in a time of disinformation. We live in a time of distrust of media. And so as much as possible, we wanted to have the actors who have shaped this political situation speak for themselves. So that is why you see Mitch McConnell is enraged, a very young Mitch McConnell. And he vows, you know, what is it now? It's in the 1980s. So this is a 40-year grudge that Mitch McConnell has held. And and he makes good on his promise. And so when we fast forward um, to Barack Obama's attempt to nominate Merrick Garland, you see Mitch McConnell refuse to even give him a hearing, a hearing, not not just a vote, but a hearing. Uh, So it's 260 some days before the election when McConnell refuses to let Merrick Garland have a hearing. It's 23 days before the election when Amy Coney Barrett's nomination is pushed through. Right. And early voting had already started, as you point out in the series, in several states. Early voting had already started. And, you know, What's important about all this is it's not illegal. You can question the morality of it, but McConnell is playing political hardball. And so, you know, what what I invite people who are watching this to do is to say, there, you know, you, John, you talked about things you didn't know. What I didn't know is how much um, 
of Supreme Court practice and procedure are just norms. They're things that they normally do. They are not required. So that's why we're all stunned to realize the Supreme Court of the United States is the only court without a code of ethics. Every other federal, state, administrative law judges have a code of ethics. Why in God's name would the Supreme Court of the United States, the most important court of the land, not have a minimal code of ethics? And we need to pressure our elected leaders to assure that that happens. National Geographic Documentary Films and Picture House present the provocative new film, The Mission, from Emmy-winning directors Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. The Mission tells the gripping story of John Chow, the young American missionary killed attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island, examining how Chow's youthful thirst for adventure became a fatal obsession. Held by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year, a nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. Compelling, says The Playlist. Riveting, says Deadline. The Mission, now playing in select theaters. So we're talking to Dawn Porter. She is the director of the new docu-series, Deadlock, How America Shaped the Supreme Court. Dawn, you, you, you touched on something, and, and actually Matt brought it up, and I, I want to jump back to this, because when you talk about the long game, when we talk about not just this judge or that judge who may be more predisposed to the president's ideology arriving to the court, that there was a, a concerted effort to get a particular kind of judge on the court and that was backed by the Federalist Society. Talk about that society and talk about, and again, Matt alluded to this, however you may feel about that society, they've been effective. They have been exceptionally effective. The, the Federalist Society has been, you know, incredibly effective. It begins as kind of a think tank for in law schools. And a, a number of conservatives felt that law professors were too left-leaning. And so they needed to kind of counter what they thought was, you know, the stranglehold of the next generation of lawyers who were being indoctrinated with liberal ideology. <laughs> they wanted to counter that and have their own group of people. So one of the uh, first advisors to the Federalist Society groups is Antonin Scalia. And he's at the University of Chicago. Then very quickly, it becomes you know, not just this uh, professional organization, but then it becomes kind of a debating society. And then the Federal Society realizes what an, influ what an influential organization it can be. And it becomes this place that is uh, recruiting and grooming the next generation of judges. Leonard Leo comes in. He's not actually the head of it, he's, um, but he's part of the leadership. And Leonard Leo um, starts to raise money, um, solicits very wealthy, uh, very conservative billionaires. And the influence of the Frelish Society over the last several decades is enormous, culminating with their most successful operation, which is to literally create the list of justices for former President Trump. Leonard Leo creates that list. And that list is based on essentially a litmus test. How will these people vote? Major Garrett, I did a, a screening in Washington, D.C. with the journalist, CBS journalist Major Garrett, who's reported on this extensively. 
Um, and he notes that when Trump meets with Leonard Leo, Leonard Leo hands him a list of 10 names and says, like, here's the people. And Trump says, well, I want 11 because Trump wants to appoint all the justices of the Supreme Court. Um, but so is is there anything wrong with an ideological group like trying to, to put forth its name? No. Is there anything illegal, immoral? No. But it is unheard of for a sitting president to completely outsource to an ideological group that has a billion dollars at its disposal to recruit very conservative judges and to hand over the a choice of Supreme Court justices to that group. And that's exactly what Trump did. Then Trump gets to make three appointments to the court. So Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Gorsuch all are Federalist Society, born, bred, raised, and elevated to that court. And so when people think that this court is completely out of step with the American public, they're completely in step with the Federalist Society. And that was by design. Right. One of your analysts says in episode four, quote, it's really not a conservative court. It's a quite radical court, which is a pretty stunning thing to say. And I think a lot of people would would agree with it. I think the trajectory, in a way, of the series is going from a court under Earl Warren that was preoccupied with protecting the rights of minorities to what I would argue is ensuring minority rule. This is a very disturbing trend because you don't really have a democracy when you are ensuring minority rule. I really, really like that framing um, because people um, compare and say, well, isn't this just what the Warren court did? It had its ideology. The Warren Court didn't so much have any ideology as an intent on looking to the Constitution to protect minority rights. There's a difference between protecting minority rights and, as you say, assuring minority rule. So under this Supreme Court, we have seen 100 years of jurisprudence on gun legislation erased. We've seen, of course, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But some things that people haven't focused on so much that are really important are attacks on the ability of the administrative agencies to do their jobs, uh, the EPA to make environmental regulations. Do we think that climate change is important? Do we think the EPA, do we trust corporations to self-regulate? I mean, essentially, that's the alternative. It, it, it is a radical court. And, you know, I didn't take lightly that Kay Shaw said that. Kay Shaw is your quintessential, sober, serious lawyer. She is not, you know, AOC. And for her to say that, um, I think, is was, was really significant. And we did think really hard about making sure that we weren't just um, gathering a group of liberal thinkers, and throwing darts at a pretty easy target. And so we have Ted Olson in the series who argued Bush v. Gore for, you know, governor to become President Bush. We have Justice Scalia's clerk, um, John Bash, who, you know, gives his defense of Scalia's thought and, you know, of that gun decision. Don Ayers, who was in the Reagan Justice Department, says it was an exciting place to work. And these are all serious principled thinkers. 
And, um, you know, I personally, I don't have any problem with serious principled thinkers. We can disagree, but we can have conversations. I can tell you that every single person who appeared in the series to a person is concerned about the reputation of this court, but they're also concerned about the new norms that they are creating. Deciding cases on the emergency docket without opinion, for example. That's a really disturbing trend. There's a lot in the documentary that removes hope that the court will find balance, but there are some moments in the documentary where you get the sense that these individuals on the court share a very special relationship, irrespective of what's going on in the wider world. And I appreciated moments like that, and and one in particular where uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is eulogizing Anthony Scalia. Clearly, there are two people who could not be more ideologically separated, but she delivers an incredibly beautiful, uh, just eloquent comments about him and his, his philosophy and how they could be friends. Just talk about that for a moment, how important it was for you to include moments where we see that the court is made up of people. And however we may feel about it, hopefully the court can find its way. For better or worse, this this court has lasted for 200 years. um, And, you know, there's no plan B. We need it to last for another 200. Um, So uh, it's very um, well known that Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg were dear, dear friends. They traveled together. Um, they liked each other. They went to the opera together all the time. They they really, truly loved each other. And, and I think what you see in that, and which is so critically different from how people on different sides of the political spectrum feel about each other today, which is so interesting, right? Working together, they each had an admiration for the intellect and also um, just kind of the sincerity of the other. Um, they each, they, they kind of enjoyed sparring. What struck me too is, and this actually goes back to Thurgood Marshall, this is why integration is important. It's so much easier to attack a person that you don't see. It's so much easier to put nasty things on Twitter or X um, than it is to treat people unkindly when you're with them day in and day out. You know, I think the relationship between Scalia and and RBG is is such a great example of that. They never did agree. (laughs) They never (laughs) did convince the other that, you know, the other should, you know, come over to, to the other side. And in our conversations before we started our main conversation, you had some really powerful and personal things to say about why you made that transition from being a lawyer to a filmmaker. I I would love for you to share those because I think they're really important for everyone to hear, but for particularly young people of color to hear your why and attach that to your true success as a filmmaker because you've gone after subject matter and really delved in a way that has benefited all of us, all of us as Americans. Um, Well, thank you for that. I I mentioned my background is a lawyer. I never intended to be a filmmaker. 
it wasn't in my imagination. Um, and this is despite the fact that my father was a commercial photographer. I, we actually used to make Super 8 films when I was a, a child. Um, mm. I wish I still had them. I'm sure they were brilliant. Um, <laughs> I was, you know, six years old. I, I, Bergian. <laughs> I know. I was like, hand me the camera. I got this. But, you know, I when I went to work for ABC News, um, I saw really good journalism. I saw how people took complicated subjects and made them comprehensible. And that was really fascinating to me because before I was working with journalists in the newsroom and, you know, television journalists, I, I couldn't even imagine how, how did that get into the TV? You know, how does that work? How does, how does all that happen? And what I also quickly saw was there were a lot of stories about people who look like me, but not by people who look like me. The Black experience as kind of an anthropological like investigation <laughs> rather than coming from a place of understanding. I also saw um, who was getting to tell the stories. And the people that were getting to tell the stories had come up through, you know, a certain kind of work experience where you're an intern, you work for free. Well, if you can't afford to work for free or you don't have anybody who's going to hire you, how are you even supposed to get into, you know, the the pathway? I really started to think, um, and, and this is what I think is really important for anybody who makes any kind of film, is like, what do you have to say? Do you have something to say? Is there some reason why you should be telling the story? And I don't mean that to say only Black people can make films about Black people. I don't, I don't think that. I don't want to be told I can't make films about white people. You know, I made a series about Bobby Kennedy. I made a film about Lady Bird Johnson. But I do think filmmakers have to question what they're bringing to the story and kind of kick the tires on their possible blind spots. My first film, I was making a film about Black public defenders. And I related to them in a different way. I was the first person in my family, my immediate family, to go to law school. I understood the pressures that they had to be successful. I understood why their parents even though these are successful law school graduates, were disappointed that they were becoming public defenders. They wanted them all to go be corporate lawyers and make a lot of money. And so, you know, that's an experience I had personally. And I understood kind of, I think on a deeper level, what kind of commitment these young people had to have to pursue what was their dream. Um, and, and I think that that's important. Nobody makes a film by themselves. Like, you know, I have a big team of people on different projects. I, I curate them. I bring them because they have different experiences, but then you got to listen to their different experiences. Um, and that that's what's so joyful about filmmaking. I feel like I'm on a constant curiosity quest, you know, like trying to explore things that, that I just, I don't understand. <laughs> I want to understand them better. Um, and so, you know, I, I really love like the work I get to do. Well, Don Porter, the director and executive producer of Deadlocked, uh, America Shaped the Supreme Court. Uh, it's from Showtime. It's available on uh, Paramount+. Plus. Thank you so much for joining John Ridley and me on Doc Doc. Thank you so much.
John, it's great to have Don Porter on the show with us. He's an extraordinary filmmaker, really engaged with some of the most important issues facing our country. And you and I, we are not done talking about the Supreme Court and probably its single most controversial justice. That would be Clarence Thomas and also his wife, Ginny Thomas, who were the subject of uh, a really powerful investigative film. Yeah, Don's film did such a great job of looking at the court from uh, about the Eisenhower era all the way to the modern era. And and this film next week, Clarence and Jenny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court, really looks at the one person on the court right now who is so synonymous with the Supreme Court for so many reasons. It's an amazing film. It's a frontline documentary. It was directed by Michael Kirk, and it's an, an amazing conversation. That's coming up on the next episode of Doc Doc, so please join us. Uh, I forgot. I got to usher people to the door this week. Thank you, Matt. And we will see everybody next week on Doc Talk. Mm-hmm.